Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast, everyone. Today, we are interviewing a friend of mine and somebody that I've worked with a few shows, uh, James Kennan Mitchell. I met him back in, I think it was 2015 in November at Tri-Cities Opera. He came and directed our Iolanta, which was a really amazing piece. Unfortunately, I ran, what did I do on that show? I never could see the super titles. And so I think it was much more moving for people who saw the super titles than myself. Everybody always cried at the end of it. And I had no idea what was happening at the end because I didn't speak Russian. But anyways, that's where I met James. And then we brought him back in 2000 and the 16, 17 season. And he directed a double bill at Tri-Cities Opera, which was this really beautiful. We took um, a Schoenberg songs and paired it with the, oh my God. The something hour. <laughs> uh, Ravel, Laura Espanol, the Spanish. Laura Espanol, right. So these two pieces kind of that had absolutely nothing to do with each other. And James was able to create a comprehensive show that used all the same performers and kind of related the two pieces to each other and just blew the entire audience and the cast out of the water about how he put these pieces together. So, James, welcome to our podcast. The the thing that I love about, well, the reason I wanted to bring you on and what I love about your background is that you started as a re- as a, a pianist, a rehearsal pianist, right? And mm-hmm. then you, collaborative pianist, and then you kind of moved into directing. And I don't think I've ever met anybody else who's made that transition. Usually you find performers who move into directing or stage managers, but I personally have never met a a pianist who decided, you know, I'm tired of playing at the piano. I'm going to get up and tell singers what to do. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, they do tell singers what to do, but on a different level. Right. Well, that's sing this note correctly, not move over here. Yeah, true. So James just wanted to give them all the notes himself. Um, So (laughs) can you tell us a bit, how did you get started in theater? What kind of made you um, start doing piano and become a collaborative pianist? And then how did you make that transition from wanting to get up and, and start directing and coming up with concepts for shows yourself? Well, it started, I mean, it really, from the very beginning of doing music, I was always interested in theater. Um, and I, I don't think, it took me a while to realize that I was putting the two things together, but um, I was a... a musical buff um when i was i mean not a buff i guess but when i was like four um i was obsessed with you're like i was a pro when i was a toddler Uh, absolutely um no but (laughs) you know like i was i was really into uh les mis and phantom of the opera when i was like five and that was my sort of i knew i knew those shows backwards and forward from a young age um because that just happened to be what was around and I don't remember how old I was when the first time that my parents put on a PBS opera, I think I was maybe seven. Um, and the first opera that I ever saw was a PBS broadcast of La Traviata. And I loved it. And uh, I started playing piano when I was eight. 
And I had, um, you know, as only an eight-year-old can, I had these epic dreams of becoming a concert pianist, and that was all I wanted. Um, and when I was 12, I moved to Germany with my parents. Um, my <laughs> not, not by moved. yourself, just no, eight years old. Myself. That's it. Go to Germany. <laughs> uh, but we we moved to Germany, and I all of a sudden was in this place where um, I could go to the opera all the time. You know, I could we could go. Um, we didn't go every weekend, but I, you know, I there was always something on. And so uh, my dad and I would go to the opera on a regular basis, and I was um, exposed to just tons of that world. And I really started, you know, by the by the time I was in high school, I already was really focused on opera. And I still, you know, I, I worked really hard. I was a pianist, and so I was still playing solo repertoire. But um, at a fairly early point, it it already became a means to get into a music school so that I could work towards being a coach or a collaborative pianist. Um, and I had some, uh, some opportunities I got to play, uh, for acting lessons and some voice lessons when I was in high school. Um, so that gave me a little bit of a taste of what that was. But then by the time I got into my undergrad, um, where I was actually, I was there as a music theory major and, I had in my head that I probably wanted to be a conductor or maybe a coach. And so I really spent as much time as I could in undergrad with the voice students and in the voice department. I went to, you know, pseudo classes that I had no reason to be at and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, and went to every operatic performance that I could get to in undergrad. Um, and when I got out on the other side, um, I, I went and I taught for a little while. I taught for a year, um, taught musical theater. And I had always sort of, I also was a, a theater kid. And so I, I did summer stock, um, you know, as a singer in undergrad. And I was always kind of straddling the worlds because I loved being on stage, uh, but I also loved playing the piano and I, I really liked collaborating with people. And it wasn't really, it was in, grad school that I started to understand how much I wanted to be creating the theater, not just participating in it, um, either as a rehearsal pianist or a coach or as a singer, I realized how much I liked coming up with what the, um, what the piece was itself. Mm -hmm. And that happened partly because my graduate recitals both you know, as a collaborative pianist, both ended up being staged. And one of them was um, called Mad and was uh, a bunch of mad scenes. And the other was a piece called Berlin im Licht that was a collaboration with a friend of mine, a great singer named Marissa Chalker. And we put together this, this piece that was a mixture of some Schoenberg, some Eisler, and a lot of Weil. And, uh, told sort of the narrative of Kurt Weill's life and his, uh, it explored his exile from Germany. When um, you would yeah. love that. I know. Cindy I love loves Weill. Weil. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it was really fun. And um, I played Kurt Vile. I didn't wear a bald cap, which I should have, but uh, <laughs> I <laughs> but I did have classes and uh, read sections of his letters and that sort of put the whole thing together. Um, and it was those it was those things that sort of clued me in that what I really liked doing was um, that what I was doing without even realizing it was directing. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, out of that that I, I started to more um, intentionally pursue ways of being involved as a director. And I also had a, um, I worked as a pianist um, and was a participant in the cooperative program at Westminster Choir College, which is an opera training program, a three-week intensive. And uh, it brings together professionals from all over the country. And I had the opportunity to meet um, a director named Sandra Bernhardt, who uh, is sadly no longer with us, but she was a huge influence in the one summer, the two summers that I got to work with her because I was so used to sitting and being somewhat passive as a collaborative pianist. You know, I was, I was always in the room and often sort of biting my tongue when I had really strong opinions about what something was dramatically. And she, for whatever reason, saw that I was always sort of anxious to speak and she would in, um, she would welcome input. And so we started, you know, I started to talk more in those coachings and got to be a part of the process. And she was the first person to sit down with me and talk to me about, you know, basically said, uh, you know, moving from what you're doing at the piano to being a director is not a crazy transition. People do it um, and really, you know, paid attention to that interest and um, helped me sort of move further into making that actually a part of my professional life. So, so you're, the beginning at cooperative you were the collaborative pianist and now you are directing shows at cooperative correct was yes that, uh, was that the first place that you directed was was there or did you have um no not quite i actually the <laughs> there was a so cooperative it's a training program in the summer but they started i think it was my second year they started doing operas in january sort of as a fundraiser and they started out as semi-staged operas, basically semi-staged in concert. And for uh, the first year that they did that, they did La Boheme and Don Giovanni, and I was assistant conductor for Don Giovanni. Um, And the next year they were doing Daughter of the Regiment, and I asked if I could be assistant director instead. And so I was assistant director to the director, David Paul, who's fantastic and also um, gave me a lot of guidance and uh, that was the first time that I got to sit and sort of actually feel like I was in a little bit more of a directing world because I was his AD. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think it was after that that uh, Susan Ashbaker of Tri-Cities Opera asked me if I would be willing to come up and direct La Voix Humaine. Um, and that was the first time that I was actually... Um, actually directed. Had, the, had the title of director actually that's not true i did um <laughs> i forget i did uh i did a tiny little production of faust in a church with a group in princeton called opera moto that now exists i think in um i think they're in minneapolis now um but that's weird. 
uh, yeah, the, the director um, of the company moved there. And so she took the, the company with her and they, I think they, um, they do quite a lot there and are doing very well. But uh, I did this Faust that was a really sort of scaled down, um, I called it a chamber Faust uh, because it was, <laughs> it was Faust without a chorus. And uh, it was it was a weird little funky sort of concept production that because it was in a church, I made the church into sort of a like church asylum kind of a la uh, mm-hmm. the asylum season of uh, American Horror Story. And we told the whole Faust story as a flashback, basically Marguerite at the end of her life in the prison looking back and remembering how everything happened and inserting the devil into it as a way of making sense of her sort of how her life fell apart. Um, but because we had this tiny little, like almost no chorus, uh, we used the, the idea was basically that, um, Faust was being played, that there was like a Met broadcast of Faust going on while she was reliving all of this. And Mm -hmm. so we used like a radio, playing the choruses as sort of moments of transition, but then everything else was really intimate and small. So that was sort of the the first actual thing that I did um, where I was considered director, but like eight people saw it. And uh, <laughs> well, no, 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 you had somewhere, you know, you had a couple exactly. people on stage. So, you know, there's a couple actors who saw it and then yeah. people came to see their friends okay. in it. So that's good. And you just told us. So now those people know that you did something. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But no, it was a really fun, you know, it was a really fun, like it was an, an experiment. Um, and then La Voir Men was the first time I really, uh, you know, sort of felt like I had a, a uh, it did something with a company. Um, and it was the first time that Tri-Cities used their, uh, used a non-traditional performance space for one of their pieces, mm-hmm. uh, which was fun. So for that piece, because I wasn't at Tri-Cities Opera yet, um, from what I've been told by you and people there, it was very, it was not part of their their full season. It was kind of an experiment that Susan was doing to see if this room could be used as a performance space. And so you took this empty room, and at the time, I believe it, it wasn't painted black yet, and we didn't have lights. Um, so... And I don't think you had designers either, right? You kind of did it all yourself, or did you work with some designers? uh, I had the stage manager at the time, um, Howie, and I can't remember his last name um, because I'm awful. Uh, The stage manager at the time was my lighting designer, and he helped pull all of the props and set pieces that we needed from what was in stock at Tri-Cities. so I had, I did have, I did have a lot of help with that one. Um, in the, I mean, I lights would not have been, lights lighting was a huge part of it actually, and there wouldn't have been anything if it weren't for him. Um, but, it, but it was very, it was bare bones. It was definitely very small, um, and it was sort of just us going into the props room and finding whatever we could, you know, like all the ashtrays we could find and all of the bottles and all of the, you know. Uh, cigarettes and uh lamps and you know any anything that we could find to dress the space and make it seem more like the the room itself was an apartment or a hotel room Mm -hmm. so then you you came back did you do anything between lavoie and then uh iolanta the following season 
Um, no. I think that was actually, I mean, Lavoie Men was a tryout for the space, but I think it was also definitely, uh, I considered it an audition to be allowed to do something larger. <laughs> but, you know, because it's such a, like, it's a, it's a great piece, but it's one it's person. A, it, um, one woman. Yeah, right. And how long is it? Is It's just about an hour or under an hour? Uh, just about an hour. Just about an hour. Yeah, right. So it's, it's small. I always find it interesting that, that companies produced that piece. I think Long Beach did it a few years ago that Wait, Stacey which, was a part of. Which piece? Lavoie. Uh, did Susan do that at the uh, federal building? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't work on it. I just found the space for it. But yeah, it was just Susan and uh, a trio, a piano and a drums and one other something and a cell phone. I mean, a phone and a chase lounge. It was Right. Yeah. Not much there. And I think uh, Philadelphia just announced their season and it uh, for their 018 season, and that's in it. And I'm always surprised because to me, it's, it's a one woman, less than an hour long show. But uh, I guess but it's, it's it's an intense less than an hour. I mean, it's it, if it's done well, it really is a, a pretty a powerhouse piece. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It's a it can be a real tour de force. I mean, I've. I haven't seen a bad production of it. I can imagine if it wasn't, uh, you know, if you didn't have someone who really can keep your attention for an hour, it would be difficult. But if you have the right soprano, um, it really is is great. And I have Rebecca Heath um, was our soprano at Tri-Cities and she, you know, uh, knocked it out of the park. But it is, uh, it's the kind of piece that if it's done well, you never think, oh, they're doing this because it's cheap. You know, right. it's not, it's not, there are sometimes when something is small and you say, oh, this is a money saver. Um, right. yeah. I don't think like Love Warrior Man feels like that at all. It feels like a, a big piece. Yeah. So are there things you learned? So if that was like kind of your, your, um, your audition and your first real big directing job um, as a primary director, what did you learn from that, that you then took into your next your next gigs were there things that you were like oh my god i would never do this again or (laughs) you know i mean i feel like even i've been stage managing for 15 years there's still sometimes where i was like well that was like a a horrible mistake or next time i do (laughs) do a show like this i'll do something completely different what were some things that you were there was there anything that you took from it that you were like this is definitely gonna work for me or definitely not gonna work for me yes absolutely um i think that well (laughs) <laughs> the biggest thing I, I learned how much I didn't know. I mean, I already knew that I was, you know, coming into that side of things from a place of, you know, relative ignorance, but it was thing like trying to talk to a lighting designer for the first time. And I had never talked, oh. about, talked about light and, you know, I had never had to say I want cold or warm. Um, I had no understanding of any of that. I knew I understood what I wanted. I, I had an idea in my mind, but I had no idea how to communicate it to someone. And so that was a big thing, um, finding out what I wanted, how to say what I wanted, and also what, you know, I'm still constantly learning what is and isn't possible. Um, <laughs> and that can, I think change. most directors <laughs> are still learning that. You're like, yeah, that you can't physically do that. I mean, I know you want it, but physics... 
I was know? actually I was I was talking to the lighting designer for Tragedy of Carmen um, and set designer Amara Copacola, who you know well, was uh, there, and I said something to him, something stupid, and she turned to me and she said, "You didn't take lighting in college, did you?" <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but you know, and that's something I every I, I'm still constantly learning what uh, what that means and how to how to speak about it. Um, so that was the thing, and also, I mean, the I think one of the things that was of great importance in that show was, and it, it partly because I was working with just one person, um, it was pacing, how to not, mm. you know, not trying to get too much all at once, not throwing too much information all in what, you know, like allowing, allowing the process to take time mm-hmm. because I'm a, I'm a talker and I will throw out a million things at one time. And, you know, when you have someone who's trying to, part of what's so difficult about that piece is, you know, to stand on stage completely by yourself and remember all of that have so much happen in the course of 50 minutes and it's also really repetitive um so you know not expecting someone to get everything right from the beginning you know allowing someone to allowing to take time and really digest new ideas so did you find it easier with with Iolanta which was your second show at TCO what was that a cast of about six or seven people eight eight, eight nine. did you <laughs> did you find you know more than one there was more than one person on stage yeah. um did you find that it was that you had an easier time with pacing and that it was easier to work with with i mean abby was kind of on stage a lot but you're like no i did not learn my lesson i still have no, a difficult exactly. time <laughs> no, I, I really did. but here, the reason is because um because the two pieces are so completely different because the, because La Boire Men is just this, like, it just keeps barreling forward the entire time. And Iolanta is a, I love that piece. It has such an important place in my heart. I actually, I put it, the final scene is on uh, my scenes program here at WVU this semester because I love it. Um, But it's a strange piece because it's, it's this series of scenes with unconnected characters who talk about each other, but you don't see every anyone really interact with each other until the very end of play. You know, you have or play opera. Um, <laughs> you, what do I do? Uh, you you have an opening scene that's four characters together who establish certain certain parts of the plot and what the dynamic is. But the most important character in arguably in the title character's life doesn't interact with her directly until the last 15 minutes of the piece. You see Iolanta and then you see her father and he interacts with other people. He talks about how much he cares about her, but you never see the two of them together. And then you see this other character who's, you know, the character who's going to be in love with her. You see him by himself interacting with someone else. Then you see her with him and then you see everybody together and everything kind of goes crazy. But that's a very interesting way to write it. But sorry. But that's a very interesting way to present a story. 
Yeah, it it just feels like this revolving door of characters who you start to become invested in them and then they disappear and someone else comes on stage. And so I had a lot of trouble, you know, it was so easy with La Voix Humaine to understand what the arc was. And then with Iolanta, I I drove the, um, the pianist crazy because I did several run-throughs in the first like four days I wanted to do the entire piece from beginning to end. Um, and it was totally something like I needed to understand what the, what the arc was because I hadn't had to do that before. And, uh, and then I could break it down and, you know, and start really doing scene work. But I, I had, you know, some directors are really, really good at, maintaining the arc even if they don't direct chronologically you know some directors really want to start at the beginning of the piece and work to the end and some are really good at being able to say okay it's day one of rehearsal but because of the people that we have and because of this conflict and this conflict we are starting with scene seven and then we're going to do scene three and then we're going to do scene two and then tomorrow we're going to do scene you know and and not get in the way of understanding the arc at all and that's mm-hmm. something that that's something that I learned from Iolanta I got a lot better at being able to do that um because I learned that what I wanted which was to go from beginning to end is just not always possible um and that you have to have a you have to be better at moving from um point to point and still being able to communicate to your actors what where they are in that moment um without having directed everything up to that point yet so then jumping ahead to the following year when you did two pieces that had nothing to do with each other from my viewpoint and i was just the uh production manager on that piece so i wasn't in on on every rehearsal but i feel like you did do a i know you struggled a little bit because they're such weird pieces but i do feel like you kind of had showing up to rehearsal that first day a general arc of where you wanted to go with the two pieces. I know there were little things that you were figuring out, but I do feel like you kind of knew where you wanted it to go and it was just figuring out how to get there. Yes. Uh, well, I would say even more than knowing wh- knowing where I wanted to go, I knew what I wanted it to mean. Like I understood what right. I was trying to say. And that's part of, that's the other thing that I, I think with both of the first two pieces, I um, I hadn't had to deal with that yet. Um, I think the other thing that was really helpful about that was that I was coming right off of uh, my first time doing a cooperative opera, and that was Traviata. And that story, that's, you know, an opera that I, like I said, it was the first opera that I ever watched on television. It Mm -hmm. And so it's been near and dear to my heart from a very young age. And again, I don't really know why I didn't figure out earlier that I wanted to be a director because I, like Traviata is a good example of, I was constantly drawing and I'm not a good artist, but I was constantly drawing sets and costumes for Traviata and like directing it in my head. Um, So by the time I got to do that piece, I, I understood so much what I wanted to say about it. And I think that made it easier to go into the Breda leader and Laura Espanol with an understanding of 
you know, I, I don't think I knew right at the beginning what that was, but I think coming out of Traviata, I understood that I needed to know um, right. from the very beginning. And yeah, that definitely made it easier to find a thrust. And it was, it you know, it did become, um, it became so much about trying to connect the pieces because I knew there was a connection in there. Um, I, I knew that Susan hadn't chosen them randomly and that there was some kind of connective tissue. I just couldn't figure out what it was. And I wouldn't figure out what it was unless I found out what I really thought the heart of each piece was. And so finding that made it um, that much easier to come in with some sort of a, uh, a plan for how, what the arc was going to be. But it was also really interesting because, you know, the two, the strange thing about that was Le Raspagnol is Le Raspagnol. It's a, you know, it's an opera. It's its own piece. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it has a narrative structure. The Breda Leader is a collection of songs. There, there is no narrative structure to it. And we created the narrative and I think that was sort of something that was really interesting was to be working on one piece that was finished, that was a, you know, I, we were finding it certainly, but it exists. We weren't going to be changing. We weren't changing the, scenes around. Yeah. Right. Um, but the Breda leader, we were rewriting. I mean, there was no final script for the lines that went in between the songs until I think maybe three days before we opened. Um, poor Stacy Geyer was amazing at keeping up with the, you know, me coming in and saying, okay, I want to move this line to a completely different place in the show, but I want to put this line here. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing ended with, uh, a poem that didn't get put in until sometime during tech week. Yeah. Did you find that or did she find that? I found it. Um, there was a book. Right. Was, yeah. And it's the thing is we were both really drawn to a lot of the same stuff, but there was this book, um, fantastic book called, I think it was called Fragments that was like, it's beautiful. I mean, cause it's, it's all uh, well photographed, uh, originals of like everything on paper that we have from Marilyn Monroe. So her poems, um, but also just notes that she took and letters that she wrote and yeah, it was uh, life. I am of both of your directions, um, and it just jumped out as the thing that so screamed what you know what we had been already working on up to that point in the piece with the the other text that we found from her, um, because we started out with only quotes from her, and then finding her poetry put just a you know. A, totally put it through a different lens. Mm -hmm. So for people who don't know what, what James did with this show is um, we took the, the Schoenberg songs and he kind of made it about Marilyn Monroe and her life. And so then he took quotes and poems from her and then interspersed them in the songs to kind of create a, you kind of created the story, not story of her life, but like of who she was as a person, maybe I would say. Um, and how she interacted with people um, to create this this whole story just out of these these German uh, they're not love songs but what do you what do you call them like well, cabaretish cabaret songs um, yeah they were written they were written for um, for cabaret um, the 
Yeah, and the thing that I mean, I that came from the music because I kept listening to one of the songs, Galatea. I kept hearing, and the image of Marilyn Monroe in um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend scene just kept. I just kept seeing that when I was listening to these big crashing, sweeping chords at the beginning. And so it became, you know, and I, I kind of shied away from for a really long time. I didn't want to go totally down the road of Marilyn Monroe because I didn't want it to become gimmicky or cartoony, but it just kept coming back to that image. And there was something really interesting about looking at this post-war sex symbol singing these really sort of um that i actually I, I drove stacy geyer a little bit crazy because the beginning of the process um when i read the bretta leader texts over and over again i was just reading the the words and what i was really sort of stuck on was gender roles and how they were of ambiguous voice and some of them were very clearly a male voice and some were very clearly a female voice, but they're right. all meant to be sung by a woman. And so that, you know, uh, gender bending and back and forth of that. And so looking at it through this, you know, like this sex symbol who was so defined by male ideas of sexuality at the time, but also managed to use that to break out of them. And, you know, who, again, on paper and in her poetry was so much more than the character Marilyn Monroe that was created. You know, she wasn't, she as a human was not that blonde bombshell that she uh, portrayed in the movies. And then that also became sort of, you know, a persona that she had to play in everyday life. She was so much deeper than that. Yeah. Here she had things... a huge library and was very versed in all kinds of books of different genres and could hold very in-depth conversations about philosophy and stuff, which is something you wouldn't think when you picture Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And, and who, someone who took her craft, who was, you know, she, she took the craft of acting very seriously. She took class very seriously. Um, and, you know, you watch her performances and you can see that she really, you know, even even in being given roles that, you know, put her in this specific box, she was still always trying to do them justice with more than, um, you know, with a technique. Uh, yeah. And so to, to hear her sort of uh, going to these extremes of both masculine and feminine sexuality um just became really interesting and so it became about starting with her as you know at sort of the height of her blonde bombshell career in diamonds are a girl's best friend and then uh stripping away piece by piece um literally stripping away clothing um until she disappeared behind this white sheet you know that implied um, and symbolized really just naked sexuality. And then under that finding uh, once the blonde wig and uh, you know, all of the clothes disappeared, finding uh, Norma Jean um, under there at the heart and seeing, you know, um, that she was there actually all along and everything that she was doing. Um, 
became the the point of it. And then that was a really interesting foil to Le Espagnol, um, which also takes a a woman and puts her in a um, sheds a, a says a very specific thing about the woman in that um, situation. You know this. Uh, woman trying desperately to get sexual satisfaction from these men who are uh, <laughs> who are so apparently hell-bent on it but are completely incapable of actually satisfying her um, in the time that she has to achieve it. <laughs> the time so that she is- has to achieve it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's all about an hour that her husband's gone and all these men but it's what I love about it. And I guess I still, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend the fact that that was only like the third or fourth show you directed. Cause you came in with this, this vision of putting these pieces together. Um, and like I said, the, the, everybody walked away from that, both everyone who worked on it and the audience and board members and production were just kind of in awe of how you, you put these pieces together and how you made them relate to each other and the arcs that you came up with. You know, it was like you've been doing it for years. So, um, Thank you. congrats on that. No <laughs> pressure for the next piece. <laughs> but, but this is the, I, I, the thing about it is part of what because you you I kind of allude to this, but the I was lucky because no one was expecting anything. I mean, people were walking in going, well, "How the hell are you putting these pieces together? Yeah, what are yeah, these exactly. have with each other?" And a lot of people didn't know either piece even you know, uh, either section separate from one another. So I kind of felt a little bit like, you know, I, there was pressure and I wanted to make sure that it was, I wanted to pull it off, but I felt a little bit like I could get off scot-free because nobody knew, nobody had any expectation of me. And so I felt like if they came in and were like, oh, that was bad, they weren't going to say that director's awful. They were just going to go, those pieces. I don't, weird, you right. know? I don't uh, get why those pieces were together. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And the the difference between the, doing that and doing something like, um, you know, Traviata the few weeks before that, or uh, recently um, this January I did Magic Flute, and now doing Tragedy of Carmen, which is not Carmen, it's not Grand Opera Carmen, but I still feel like people they know the story. Yeah, they're gonna walk. They know the character, and they're gonna walk in with some kind of an expectation of what they should see. Um, and it's a very different, you know, it, that actually feels like much more pressure in some ways because um, there's an expectation. I don't actually like actively think about that very much, but it's, um, it is a really different, you know, set of goals. So then knowing that they have an expectation, do you approach those differently than a piece like the ones you did at TCO where, you know people don't have an expectation and you can try to morph it however you want? Or do you kind of approach I, them both the same way? I try to approach them both the same way. And that's actually kind of something that I, when I, if I feel myself doing something because of what I think, if I find myself asking the wrong questions or, you know, focusing on what people are going to think instead of focusing on what the story is and how I should be telling it, then that's always a, a red flag. Um you know, you, you can't assume that anybody, you can't assume what your audience does or does not know. 
with these True. pieces. So you have to always look at it as a story that someone, um, it, that anyone could understand. Um, that was something that uh, I, Sandra Bernhardt said to me once, and it was actually when I was, we were talking about concept productions because it was right before I was going to do that weird church Faust. And I kind of, I told her what my idea was. And I said, do you think that this is, you know, do you think this is okay? Or like, should I not be trying to do this with, with this piece? And she said, as long as you can still explain what your story is in three sentences, you're okay. She says, as soon as you can't explain what the story is in three sentences, then you've gotten too far away from um, what you're trying to communicate. Hmm. I never thought about that, but I guess that makes sense. Like if it's so complicated or so out there that you can't explain it easily, yeah. then I remember I was no going to get it. I was playing for an acting lesson once um, or again, acting coaching with a singer um, when I was in high school and this uh, musical theater actress was singing Bill from Showboat and she, she the acting teacher asked her so what is this about and she just started going off in German saying it's this guy and he doesn't treat this person well and he's not that special blah 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 and the guy stopped her and he said nope well, it's about a girl who's in love that's it that's the whole the whole thing that's it that's it like don't you are way overthinking this sing it again and you know it was but it was such a simple directive but it, it made all the difference just to say like stop stop thinking about context stop thinking about everything that you think the audience should be understanding just you know what is what is your truth what is your um you know what is the actual emotion of the moment for this person and play that um, and that's the thing I think part of, you know, I think that way, try to think that way as an actor. And so directing is, is an extension of that is trying to make sure that everybody on stage is doing that, that everybody on stage is doing, you know, is playing their own moment. Um, and then trying to set up a situation in which, uh, that makes sense for the audience mm -hmm. and to have everything else that's on stage serve that same idea. So you, you kind of said it, but I was going to ask coming from a, a collaborative pianist standpoint and being in so many rehearsals as a pianist, when you come to directing, do you look at the music first or do you think about like the story first? Cause I know it depends on, what your background is. For example, we talked to Cara Consilvio, who, who I've worked with at TCO, but she comes from an acting background. And so she focuses on like story first and then music, as opposed to um, a lot of opera directors who come from a music background, obviously start with the music, kind of listening to how the music works first. Yeah. Does that make sense? How yeah, is it? Absolutely. How do you, do you come about it a certain way or does it kind of depend on the piece? It, it definitely depends on the piece a little bit. Um, like I said, I, with, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm a pianist. And so I really kind of have been cautious about being too wrapped up in the music. And I, I had another thing, Sandy Bernhardt again said, like, you're going to have to make sure that you really pay attention to text. Um, mm -hmm. And 
And I took that to heart. And so it, it really does depend, like something like Traviata, again, like because I it's been in my periphery and in my life for such a long time, um, it would be impossible for me to divorce myself from what I already think about it, what I already have in my mind. But the first thing I did, knowing that I already had the music sort of in the back of my mind and I didn't need to go listen to the score immediately, the first mm-hmm. thing I did was go to source material um, because that was, I thought, you know, I know this so much as a Verdi piece. I need to know the, the background I- story. Yeah. Um, Got it. And, uh, but it is sort of different with everything. And I, I had an experience a few years ago with a, um, a friend of mine who runs a children's theater company in Nebraska um, called Theater Arts for Kids. Her name is Leah Kohler. And she brought me in to direct The Addams Family. And that's a fun piece. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was the first time I'd done any kind of directing of musical theater. Um, and I was so dead set that I wasn't going to be a pianist about it, that I wasn't going to be a coach about it, that I was going to really go into this as a director. And partway through the rehearsal process, I was just having, I was really muddled in myself and I didn't know what I was doing. And I uh, just, the process was not going well. And she said to me once, and you know, and I was saying like, "Ah, I'm just having such a hard time. I don't feel like I'm doing what I want to do. And she said, well, what do you see when you sit down and play the music? And I said, well, I haven't because that would, you know, cause I don't want to get stuck at the piano. And she said, but don't you get that? That's why you're good at this is because you are musical. Like, why would you cut off your arm? Right. When you're trying to build something like that, you know, it's, it's a huge part of what you, um, do and so you know I the next day I went in and played through a bunch of the score before I had to direct something and it made all the difference and so I found that for me it really is a balance of both things depending on where I'm coming from I the Brettel leader again I read the text over and over and over again a million times and then I listened to the music um so it's both it, it really from you know, uh, Magic Flute recently, I listened to the overture eight million times before I did anything else. I just kept saying, I, hmm. this is what sets up the tone of the piece. I already know this piece. I know what, you know, I've done flute before as a coach. I know what happens. I know what the story is. I know what story I'm going to be telling, but I don't understand the tone yet. So I wouldn't let myself move beyond the overture until something came up. And then when I finally started to get an idea, I moved into the first scene and again, just listened to the first scene a million times because I didn't feel like I was, I didn't know what I wanted my flute to be. And I already knew what the story was, but I, it needed to have some kind of a visual that I didn't have yet. Um, but I've never felt that I've never had that experience with anything else. So I feel like it, it really is sort of a, um, it, it depends on the piece, but if I'm stuck, if I don't know where I'm going, I 
will either listen to the music a lot or play the music. Um, Mm -hmm. Because also that, like, that's a completely different experience to sit down and play it and exist in the time of it, you know, be part of the creating the speed of it and the, the, the rhythm um, versus listening to someone else's interpretation of that gives totally different feelings. Well, I, can, I can imagine that you would, at least I did when I played piano a little bit and nowhere close to being good, but <laughs> you, your mind kind of focuses in a certain way that you have to focus on the notes and have to focus on the piano. And then it lets the rest of your mind kind of wander. And so it's kind of how I feel about knitting. When I really need to focus on something, sometimes I'll knit because then I could block my mind off enough to let like my subconscious wander to find the answers that I need. So I could kind of see playing the playing the piano for a certain piece doing the exact same thing you need it to do because then you can hear it and you can feel it in your body. And then you can just kind of let your mind do what it needs to do until you come up with an answer for it. Yeah. Well, you know, like everybody is, some people are visual and some people are tactile and some, and some people are oral learners and all that. And I'm the kind of, I'm a little bit of everything. And so (laughs) sometimes one thing works and sometimes something, one of the, you know, the other weird thing that I do, I mentioned, I mean, I draw a lot and it's, I am not an artist and it's not good. Like it doesn't, (laughs) I, I asked someone once because, you know, I, I'm not a designer, but if I'm doing something where I'm doing everything for it, you know, I have to have some kind of idea of, you know, I have to design it somehow. Um, And I asked someone once who had seen me do that a few times. I said, like, when I'm drawing things, because I'll have like pads filled with sketches of stuff. I said, when I draw, like, and you look at it, do you have any idea what the final product is? Like, does that actually tell you anything about what it's going to look like? And they said, nope. (laughs) Like, it kind of clicks then when I finally see the finished product, I kind of understand what your drawing was supposed to mean. But no, I have no idea what (laughs) your drawing means. Because, and I realized that it's because I'm not, you know, part of being a, part of directing is, focusing the audience's attention you're always telling them where to look um so that mm-hmm. they don't say anything important and a lot of what i'm drawing when i do that and the reason why i'll draw the same idea 14 different times or the same set piece or the same you know picture um is because usually what i'm actually trying to draw is movement like what it means to me is it's it shows me where i want my eyes to go in a moment where I want, you know, the, um, huh. focus to be. And, and not so, the overall picture of what the stage looks like. Yeah, exactly. It's not actually, it's not a record of what I think the thing should physically look like. It's what I want the emotional response to it to be. Um, well, that would make sense. Cause I'm like, man, I can draw a picture and show Cindy and she gets what I'm drawing. So either your drawings are really bad <laughs> or you're not drawing <laughs> physical things that need to happen. Well, and there's like, there, I, I can discipline myself to make something clear-ish about what I want, but it's a, um, like a, working with Amara on a set who, you know, she's wonderful and so much, she's an artist. <laughs> um, it's the last ditch effort usually if she can't understand what I'm asking for, for me to go like, you know, for me to make some crazy dumb sketch on a uh, legal pad that she goes like, oh, okay, I think I get what you mean. 
um, or if it's a layout thing or something like that, but it's not, you know, but I have no hope of actually drawing the thing that I want that she will eventually, you know, that she will turn into a backdrop or, um, or a set piece. Um, it, it's really just a record for me of what, um, you know, what a texture is going to be or, uh, yeah, or a feeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. That would explain some, and going back to what you said about lights, that would explain some of the light notes that you gave Darlene and I during the double bill when we just looked at each other and we we're like, that doesn't make any sense to us. <laughs> and we did exactly what you told us to, and then we, we hated it and we changed it all. <laughs> you just said, I want it to be pink. I want it to feel pink. And so we put like pink gel in everything, and we we're like, no, this is not it. This this definitely is not it because this looks horrible. So we like called up Craig and switched it out to a better color. The B pink. How is that not clear? Um. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't mean use pink paint. Uh, you said a pink set, so it, 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 it was. I mean, it was. I'll I'll send you pictures of it. It was a a, a bright colored set, and then we put bright pink in every light, and then we were like, yeah, this is definitely not going to work for us. We're going to have to come up with another solution, but. But because that's the thing, like putting pink just canceled out all of the pink that I had asked for from Amara. Um. Right. Well, lavender helped. Lavender helped it pop a little bit. <laughs> but yeah. So do, do you feel you've gotten better with because you've now done a, a handful of shows? Do you feel like uh, lighting is making more sense or? Yes, I feel like I'm better at asking for what I want for. And I feel like I'm better at noticing the exact moment when the lighting designer's eyes glaze over or when they start to just go like this <laughs> and stopping myself and saying like, okay, clearly I'm not, can you tell me what you think I'm asking for? <laughs> um, you know, and I've also, I've also just kind of given into the fact that if you have a good lighting designer, if you tell them what you want, like ex if you tell them the effect you want um, emotionally, or if you tell them what, you know, if you tell them the reason for what you want, they will figure it out. But right, if you exactly. with no knowledge of technique to tell them what to do instead of what you want, like <clears throat> they are, if they're good at their job, they will understand, excuse me, what you say as a, they will understand how to get the emotional res response you want. Yeah. Or I think that's true with most. You want it. Yeah. That's true with most designers. Like, I don't usually have to tell the scenic painter exactly what color brown, but I'm like, we're yeah, in a rusty exactly. old barn that hasn't been maintained. Go. Yeah. <laughs> you choose yeah. what browns that is. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And um, I actually was also was on, on Adam's family. Um, I did something that I hadn't like, usually, you know, you tell the lighting designer what you want and then, go away and then they show up having programmed a bunch of stuff already or having focused a bunch of stuff already and they show you things. Um, during Adam's family, I sat with the person who was doing lights and we, because he was new to the space as well and we went through every single look was me going through every single, it took forever, it was me going through every single light and saying more of that, more of that, less of that more of this color, less of that color. Like every single look was actually us 
sitting and talking through the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that really helped because I wasn't pushing the buttons, <laughs> but I was basically, you know, I was asking for every, for really specific things. Um, and that did help. It didn't, you know, certainly didn't make me a lighting designer, but it, it gave me a better understanding of what the process was. Um, so then you could kind of see like what, what it looked like when you were getting backlight versus front light versus side light yeah, and exactly. the different colors. And yeah. so you kind of had like a little, a little masterclass in, in lighting yeah. on that show. Yeah. And it, you know, like I said, it's sort of a, I I've learned to, um, I, I'm fairly obsessive about having, a backstore of visuals now that I can show someone this is what I want or I want half of this mixed with this both for for set lighting and costumes I do a lot of Pinterest boards and find some visual version of what it is that I have in my head so that even if it's not the entire thing I can say like you see what the left half of the stage looks like in this that's what I want um because that's the other thing. If you can, you know, if you can show someone what you want, and um, everything is just stealing, nothing's original. So <laughs> if you can so find true. what you want, um, <laughs> that's it. And you know, uh, I feel like that's what uh, Laura Spaniola, the costumes, was all going through and saying, "Okay, I want this skirt, but I want that hem. I want this shirt, but with these sleeves. I want this necklace. Yeah. Needs to have this thing added to it. Um, you know." being okay with knowing that that's you know that's what that is and that's what like my this what i was going to say a million years ago when i before i got off on tangent was being visual versus you know aural and those things when i if i'm working on something i tend to have a giant bulletin board that has everything on it that i've drawn every list that i've made um, and I keep it in my bedroom and it's there in the corner of my eye all the time. So that even when I'm not actively focusing on it, it's there. And I'll, you know, if I get to a point with something where I don't know what I want, I'll watch television, but with the board just to my left so that I'm constantly checking back in and right. like letting my brain, like you said, letting my brain shut off to the point where it can do the work that it needs to do without me, you know. Like but, trying to force it to do the work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what, yeah, I love doing stuff like that. So we, we, we try to keep all of our podcasts close to an hour. So I keep getting messages from Kai that we're getting close to an hour. <laughs> so the... um. The last question that we ask everyone, and I can't remember if I warned you about this, but our, our last question, because we're twins. He has a nervous look on his theater. face. You, you might get, can you see his face? He has <laughs> Is, a nervous look. Do you have any, <laughs> any twin stories? Like, have you worked with twins? Did you grow up with any twins? Have you, do you um, have anything that's like twin related that like a little antidote? It, it doesn't Both have twin to include are funny. theater. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Got any good stories about Cindy? I don't know. <laughs> um, he got to work with Darlene and I, so that's almost like working with you and I because we've been together for so many years. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, no, but that wasn't interesting. Working with you and Darlene was a completely different experience to working with um, you without Darlene. <laughs> you and Anna. Um, 
I, uh, I don't think, I mean, twin stories. I'm going to get, get off and there'll be some like, and remember that I have like that. My siblings are twins or something. And I forgot about it. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be like, dude, how many Um, years have we been your siblings? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, actually, no, I do. I have a good twin story. It's a weird twin story. Um, I, the best, do you know the musical, the wild party? I've heard of it, but I don't really know it. I have no idea. Uh, I was in it in college at a community theater in Rochester, New York. And I, uh, now I'll have to to tell him that I'm talking about this, but um, it's a, so Wild Party is a wonderful musical. It's a great story. Um, There are these two twin brothers named Oscar and Phil, and they are musical theater composers in the 1920s. And they are crazy over the top. They are gay. And they are in an incestuous relationship with each other. Very interesting. Yes. And uh, Wild Party, there's in Act Two, there's an orgy. So I did this show. uh, The Bishop of Rochester came to see us in it. So that was interesting. Um, (laughs) We, so I played one of the twins and my twin brother, and I guess you guys don't, this podcast so no one can see, but I'm, very pale and have very dark hair. And my twin brother was played by a redhead. (laughs) Yeah. And he had to dye his hair. Um, And when we were, when we were cast, we like met each other and looked at each other and were like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) And and he, you know, like the first time we met each other, he walked up to me and was like, Oh, I guess they expect me to dye my hair. Um, but so he he did, and then we ended up um, being wonderful twins. But uh, my favorite <laughs> thing about the production was that we had, you know, we had decided, especially because we didn't think that we looked anything like each other. If you look at produ- pictures from the production, we did actually on stage look like, like each other. And I see what the director saw now. But we looked at each other and we were like, this, how is this going to work? And so we talked about, a lot how we were um basically we wanted to have such a similar physicality that if you looked at us at any given time on stage even when we were on completely different parts of the stage that we'd be doing almost exactly the same thing mm-hmm. and so we became really in tune with each other over the course of the rehearsal process with watching each other constantly and like mirroring each other's uh body language even when we were very far apart. And there was one gesture that was uh, to having our, uh, our right elbow in our left hand and our uh, right index finger on our chin that became sort of our like go-to, like this is where they, you know, this is their sort of default pose when they're just standing and thinking. And we made this decision and then someone posted a bunch of rehearsal photos from weeks before we had made that decision. And there's a photo of the two of us standing next to each other in that exact pose (laughs) with no, like we had never discussed this and there was no, it was just like, that's we, so it was just weird because it was, you know, it was freaky because we had been weird, like look nothing like each other 
had been cast as twins. Totally didn't get it, but there's some like weird connection between me and Dan Howell that like was meant to be tapped into for the wild party. See, when you, you work know, with someone, to, like, go on talk. <laughs> <laughs> when you work with someone that closely or a lot, it just happens. Like you pick up their mannerisms, or you start walking like them, or you start talking like them, or you don't have to complete your sentence because they just understand. And people yeah. ask, like, if Cindy and I do that, it's like, yeah, but is it because we're twins, or because we're twins and we grew up together for so long that it's just yeah. been learned? Because you learned it, and you're not a twin. Yet you two could yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Although I will say there's definitely, I, I remember now actually also I, when, when I was in high school, um, the church that I played at, there were these two little boys who were twins. They must've been, it couldn't have been more than three or four at the time. And they so clearly had their own language before they mm-hmm. could even speak. They yep. would sit across from each other. I remember this. They would sit across from each other in church when they were, you know, like not, no one was paying attention to them. And they would hold each other's earlobes. They would each have one hand on the other earlobe and they would just be sitting there staring at each other. Holding <laughs> each other. And you could tell they were like talking to each other. They were having some kind of, a commu- you know, communicating about something, but nobody else knew what they were, what they were saying. And, like, they had language with each other long before they were talking to anybody else. Just fascinating. So yeah. I think it's a little bit of both, maybe. I'm pretty sure you guys are twinsy because you're twins. Mm, that's <laughs> probably true. Nature versus nurture, you know. Yeah. I think it might, might be a little bit of both. But our, our parents say the same thing about us, is that we took a really long time to talk to other people. But yeah. we communicated with each other from a really early age. But we didn't actually physically start talking to other people because... You know, there was no need, need to. to. We all we needed to do was communicate with each other. So, yeah. Wait, if I was so I have a question now. My turn, and I know we're getting we're close to an hour. But which one of you stage managed first, or did you do it at this? Like, how did that happen? That's a good question. Which one of us did stage manage first? I think it was you, because I was in charge of props. Yeah, but, it was. In, I know, I think but you, you were. got into theater at basically the same time then. Not basically, we, exactly. <laughs> Basically, we were, exactly. we were, yeah, it was we were in, in high, high school, school and it was freshman year and a friend of ours uh kate caldwell got cast in anything goes as one of the i think she's one of the angels and said hey do props we could hang out and we said sure i have no idea what that is and so we joined <laughs> but then by senior year i think i was in charge of tech and you were a stage manager well sounds yeah. about right Stacy doesn't really like stage managing. She doesn't like, um, she doesn't like people. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't really care to sit through the entire rehearsal process over and over and over. Just not really that exciting. <laughs> Whereas Twin Things, it's really fun and exciting to watch the same scene be rehearsed over and over with actors. Because I see different things. Yeah. No. I'm worried about what props and set pieces. I don't need to watch the actors. Yeah. <laughs> so together we can put on a show. <laughs> it's true. I I enjoy it. I mean, I look at the other stuff too, but I love watching the same scene over and over. And then you just like see all the little things that the performers do on stage. You know, the um the small innuendos or the way they interact with each other, or you know, this time they lifted up their right hand instead of their left hand. Oh, they've never lifted up their right hand before. You know, I like that kind of stuff. But yeah. 
But that's why we work well together because we kind of are, you know, two halves of a whole brain. But yep, balance out. I hope to experience that sometime. Yes, <laughs> we'll have to. We'll have to do a show together again, and this time give you a, a lighting designer, an actual lighting designer, and uh, you know, make it a full-on process. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs a full tech team to put on a show? We have a lighting designer. We just, you know, almost killed him. We so. just, yeah, right, exactly. We could hold yeah. on. That's really the important thing. <laughs> get get a lighting designer, <laughs> and then keep the lighting designer, and not injure him, and then get a really good costume designer, and then we might be set. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I'm glad thank we we got right. it to work. Um, we tried getting James on a few weeks ago, and then we had we had to cancel because Allegiance got in the way, but. Yeah. Thanks for coming on Shows. and for joining us. And thank you. Yeah, I hope to work with you soon. And I really hope to make it up to TCO to see tragedy because I know when you and I were talking about the set in the original concept, it sounded awesome. So I want to see where it turns into. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, James. Talk thank to you soon. You. Thank you. you. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.